What a great line that uh, we have this unchanging truth that uh, has been since the dawn of time. And uh, you're holding a copy of it in your hand. And I want you to open it and turn to Philippians chapter 4, which is a landmark here, um, significant uh, road marker. Uh, We are almost done with our study in the book of Philippians, only four chapters. And so we're transitioning today into the final chapter. And so it kind of caught up to me a little bit, I guess, uh, surprised me how quickly this book is uh, coming to a conclusion. I thought, man, I got to figure out what we're going to do next. So the request line is open. And uh, if you have a a book that's on your heart, something that you've always wanted to hear taught, um, I don't mind you sharing that with me. And I like to just throw it all into the hopper and think about it and pray about it. And you never know what comes out at the other end. But uh, uh, the very first book I ever taught as a senior pastor came as a result of a man walking out of the church uh, and whispering in my ear. And he said, I think you should teach the book of James. I don't know if that was God speaking or not, but I considered it. And I thought about it and I prayed about it. I said, like, you know what? That's a really good book. I think that is a good book. I think we're gonna, I'm going to teach the book of James. And the rest is history. And here we are. Um, so you never know what the Lord's going to do. So the request line is open, but most importantly, please pray that God would give uh, me wisdom and direction as I consider where we go in God's Word next uh, on our Sunday morning time of exposition of His Word, and um, it's always exciting to see how He directs us uh, as a church uh, where He wants us to be. But we're here in Philippians, and uh, the theme is, I guess we don't have our slide up there this morning, maybe we can get that up there if that's uh, even available But uh, hopefully you know the theme by now. It's together for the gospel and um, joyfully partnering in the cause of Christ. That's uh, the theme of the book of of Philippians. And and frankly, when I began to study this uh, months ago, I didn't know that that was the theme. I thought I already knew the theme, Uh, something about joy and something about unity. But I never saw, I think, Philippians the way I do now uh, after having studied it with you, um, that it's all about being together for the gospel, that this is an opportunity for us as as a church, that we are a fellowship of the gospel, that we have the joy of partnering together in the cause of Christ. But uh, I think we all know that that fellowship, the fellowship of the gospel is a very fragile thing. Uh, In fact, you may remember uh, when I uh, introduced this series uh, months ago, uh, I used the illustration or, of the Lord of the Rings and uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, and, and uh, the, 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 these people came together, and they were all different types of people from all different backgrounds, and, and you would think there's no way that these guys would get together about anything and, and be able to accomplish anything together because they were so different from one another, and yet they came together on this common quest, this common goal, and... Uh, those of you that were the Lord of the Rings aficionados corrected me in that I didn't say the names exactly the way they're supposed to be pronounced and things like that. But I'll never forget one individual came out and uh, after I waxed eloquent about uh, the Lord of the Rings and this fellowship of the ring and what a great example this is of, 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 of the unity that we see in the book of Philippians, he, he just said, oh, by the way, can you know that at the end they all separated and went their own way? And they all pursued this quest on their own. I'm like, uh, I must have fell asleep in that part because I don't remember that. But I said, how interesting, because any sort of fellowship, whether it's the fellowship of the ring, fellowship of the gospel, is a fragile thing. And the law of entropy is not just true in the realm of science where everything goes from a state of order and unity to disorder and disunity. It's the same in, in, in a church, that things trend towards disunity and disorder, and same thing in your marriage. If you're married, you know what that looks like, right? Everything starts in a very orderly, unified way, you know, that blissful day you got married, and then it seems like the law of entropy it doesn't just affect the planets, right? It affects your marriage, and uh, everything kind of goes from, from uh, better to worse, 
And you got to work at it. You got to fight against that entropy. And so uh, that is what we're going to see here in these first three verses of chapter four that um, this, this fellowship of the gospel, the church in Philippi, um, had a division in it. And Paul needed to address that division so that the church wouldn't splinter apart and uh, everybody would go their own way and do their own thing. Um, and so this is one of my favorite passages in Philippians, not just Philippians, but in the entire Bible, because I think it's so helpful, it's so practical what we can learn from this um, story of these two women. We know them as Euodia and Syntyche. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Father, I'm sure that none of us would want our names recorded in history or particularly in your word for all time as having been one that was not honoring to you in some way. And yet we have these two ladies' names mentioned here in this letter, and so this must have been a big deal. And I pray you'd help us to get our minds around what was going on here and not so much what was going on as what we can learn from what Paul said to these dear saints about how to get along with each other. And so I pray your spirit would grant us understanding of this text and also application of this text so that this church and the marriages that are represented and the families that are representative here, we could truly say that we're one mind, one heart, striving together for the work of the gospel, and there would be no situation that is unresolvable or irreconcilable, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, disunity and disharmony is one of the most common problems that churches face, and I would add it's also one of the most deadly uh, because disunity and, and disharmony act like a cancer that eats away at a church, and if left unchecked, it'll eventually kill it. And like cancer in the body, disunity and disharmony uh, in a church starts with small disagreements. And again, we're called the body of Christ, right? And so a small disagreement breaks out in the body amongst its members. And these disagreements turn into divisions when People begin to take sides, and everyone who agrees with one another groups together against those who disagree with them. And when this happens, the growth of the body is hindered, and its testimony to the world is weakened. And in some extreme cases, the fighting becomes so intense between the divisions that the church splits apart. Each group goes their separate way and does their own thing. And in these final stages, I think the church is is destroyed, but what's even more tragic is God is dishonored. And that's Satan's strategy. It's always been that from day one, to dishonor God by destroying his church. And his strategy is simple, divide and conquer. All that Satan needs to do is have some people disagree with something the church teaches, something that the church does, a decision that's made, and he gets his foot in the door. And then it's only a matter of time before he busts the door wide open and wreaks havoc on the entire congregation through that disunity. I watched this happen in the first church that I pastored, and that's why I'm particularly passionate about maintaining unity and harmony in our church. Paul was equally, if not more, passionate about maintaining unity and harmony within the churches that he planted and then the churches he shepherded, and he regularly addressed the subject of unity in his letters, and, and at points he even confronted specific situations 
uh, in churches where disunity and dissension existed. Let me show you a few examples. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right out of the gate, Paul has to confront the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, my, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. No, I mean this, that each, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas or Peter, and then the most spiritual people of the group are saying, well, I'm of Christ. And so Paul confronts this right out of the gate. In, uh, in his letter to the Romans, just look maybe to the page to the left, Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Turn over to the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote, this letter to the church in Ephesus at the same time he wrote the letter to the Philippians and apparently there was uh, some similar challenges that in that church. Paul addresses the importance of, of unity here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul listed some some character qualities, some, some attributes that are necessary to maintain unity within the church. There needs to be humility. There needs to be gentleness. There needs to be patience. There needs to be a tolerance. There needs to be love. And there needs to be a, a, a people that are committed. They, they're diligent. They work hard at preserving the unity that the Spirit has blessed us with uh, as a church. And here in his letter to the church in Philippi, he went as far as to publicly call out two people by name whose falling out with one another uh, apparently was common knowledge. And I would uh, trust Paul's um, wisdom and, and graciousness and, and dignity that he would have never called out these women by name in a letter that was going to be publicly read to the entire church unless this was necessary. And I think this is a good principle to remember that, that private sin should be dealt with privately and public sin should be dealt with publicly. And so I think the, this is a good example for us. And, and we know the Philippian church, we, we, we've gotten to know this church in the last three chapters, was in many ways a model church. And it was obvious that Paul had a very special relationship with this church, and he loved the people very much. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says twice he calls them beloved. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, I, I miss you, I, I, I want to see you again, my joy and crown. In other words, you are, will be my reward in heaven. You are what bring me joy. And in this way, stand firm the Lord, my beloved. A second time he says, how loved they are, how much he loves them. And yet as you read through the letter, you pick up some hints along the way that the Christians in Philippi were not as unified as they, they could have been or should have been, and it seems that there was some kind of conflict going on in the church, and it maybe was something just kind of an undercurrent of some sort, but remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul said, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain silent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in what? One spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he continues this theme into chapter 2, verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And then down in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so these suspicions that something wasn't all right are confirmed when we get to chapter 4. Because here in verse 2, Paul named two ladies who had an open conflict with one another. They had gotten cross-threaded with each other. They, they, they had, they had, they had uh, gotten sideways. They, maybe there was a clash of personalities. We're not exactly sure. Uh, we don't know much about this conflict other than it was serious enough for Paul to address it publicly. And apparently these two ladies were, were prominent members in the Philippian church. Everyone knew who they were and uh, they either had a personal conflict uh, or maybe they were the leaders of two opposing factions in the church. And yet notice how, how there was no doubt in Paul's mind that these ladies were genuinely saved, that they were true Christians. He, he, he calls them not just fellow workers, but he says whose names are in the book of life. In other words, I'm not doubting your salvation. I'm not questioning whether or not you're truly saved. No, I know that these women's names are in the book of life. They're my sisters in Christ. They may have been two of Paul's original converts who were part of that woman's Riverside prayer meeting. If you remember back in Acts 16, uh, verse 13, when Paul arrived in Philippi, he went down to the river and there was a bunch of women praying and he began to preach the gospel. And Lydia was the one who we know first got saved and she opened up her home and was likely the host of the home. And so there was these women who, who in many ways were the, the, the charter members of the church in Philippi. And notice also in, in verse 3, he considered them to be co-laborers in the cause of Christ. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. I think this is important to note that these were godly women who were faithfully serving the Lord. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, I I thought godly people who are faithful in their service to the Lord, they always get along. They never have issues. They never have disagreements. They they never have to sit down and work through their, their differences. I appreciate the wisdom of Wayne Mack in his helpful book called Life in the Father's House. He says this, quote, conflict and contention can occur between any two Christians, even if they've been committed to Christ and serving him for many years. Also, disunity and dissension can happen in any church body, no matter how faithful that church has been in the past. In fact, church splits sometimes begin with fights between those who formerly worked together in the body when it was growing and otherwise successful. He asks the question, how does this happen? The answer, he says, is a failure to resolve interpersonal conflicts biblically. He goes on to say, if we want to avoid such disunity in the church, it will be helpful for us to understand how the normal flow of human relationships can turn into a flood of seemingly irreparable discord. Some form of conflict is inevitable in any relationship involving two sinful people, but a proper approach to that difficulty will resolve it and bring the parties closer together. If an initial conflict is not handled properly, however, the problem will begin snowballing and eventually lead to an avalanche of disharmony. I think it's a very accurate description of what happens in a lot of relationships. When when an initial conflict is not resolved biblically, the problem snowballs. You get the picture of a snowball going down a hill and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and and, and into what Mac refers to as a seemingly irreparable discord. And I've seen this countless times in, in marriage counseling where I'm sitting with a couple that's been married for many years, oftentimes. It really doesn't matter if it's only been a year or it's been 25 years. It's oftentimes the same problem is that a few small offenses, just, just small, minor offenses, 
that are not resolved biblically end up leading a couple to a place where they honestly think they have irreconcilable differences. And they're sitting there going, we're done. And, And you begin to get historical a little bit and say, well, tell me a little bit about how you guys resolve conflict. And so maybe the husband is rushing out the door to work one morning and he is just kind of curt with his wife and speaks a harsh word to her and it hurts her feelings and he goes off to work and he never apologizes, he never seeks forgiveness and the wife is stewing on that all day and the man comes home and they never talk about it. He never admits that he talked to her in a wrong way and she never tells him, hey, that really hurt me. And so they just kind of go on and you put a few of those days and mornings and evenings together and, or maybe the husband's desiring to be intimate with his wife and she pushes him away and, and he, he gets bitter in his heart and, and, and they don't talk about it. They don't try to resolve it. They don't pray about it. And, and if you put a few weeks of that, a few months of that, a few years of that together and you have irreconcilable differences, or so you think. And I think it's very natural to think at that point, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's too late to try to resolve the conflict. It's, it's too far gone. The damage has already been done. There's, there's nothing that you or I can do to diffuse the problem. Well, I disagree. Uh, I think there is something you can do about it. You can follow the directions that Paul gave Yodian and Tiki. Because what we have before us here is a divinely inspired resolution manual, if you will. This is, this is Biblical Conflict Resolution 101. Because in this passage, Paul lays out here five directions for diffusing disunity among church members. And it's uh, again, not just uh, limited to, to the church. I think these five directions can be used to resolve conflict in, in any relationship and in any, any situation, whether it's a, a husband and wife, it's a parent or child, it's a brother or sister, boss, employee, two friends, two factions of the church, you name it, you put it in there and I think this will work. And if you carefully follow these directions that Paul outlined here, you will be able to diffuse the ticking time bomb that threatens to blow up your marriage or your family or your workplace or some friendship or your church. We've all seen that scene in a movie, right, where some madman has, has uh, launched some bomb. He set some ticking time bomb and, and, uh, and the good guys come along and... and uh, they, they've, they've done away with the bad guy, but now they've got to deal with the bomb. And so they're there, and, and, and they're sweating, and they've got their little clippers, and they're looking at all these different color wires, and the clock's you know, counting down, counting down, counting down, and the music is tense, and somebody gets out the instruction manual and say, okay, find the green wire. Cut that wire. Okay, second, uh, find the yellow wire. Cut that wire. Okay, now third step, take those two wires and tie them together. And right, there's some instructions, and all of a sudden, at the very last minute, the timer stops, and the world is saved. They dismantled this, this bomb in the nick of time. Well, listen, the devil is setting bombs all over the place all the time in our marriages, in our families, in, in workplaces, in, in churches, And we need to know how to dismantle the devil's time bombs. And we do that by carefully following these specific directions. What are they? Well, number one, number one, don't ever run away from conflict. Don't ever run away from conflict. Notice the main verb in verse one is stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That means to remain resolute and stable in the face of a trial or temptation. Don't waver. Don't shrink back. Don't crack or crumble under the pressure. Hang in there. Don't quit. This is one of Paul's favorite words, which he uh, has already used once in this letter. It's the same word he used back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, which gives me uh, 
helps me uh, make a connection here that, that what he was getting at, what he was hinting at in Philippians 1.27 when he talks about being one mind, or he says, I will, so that I will hear you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's making a connection here with Yodi and Syntyche in Philippians 4. He uses the same word, stand firm in the Lord. We're probably most familiar with uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where he uses this word, stand firm, in the section about the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He talks about our struggle not being against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers, against world forces of this darkness, uh, the devil essentially and his minions. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And once again, he says, stand firm. And then he goes on to describe the armor that he provides us. So this is a military word that, that depicts a soldier standing at his post in the midst of a raging battle. And so when the, and by the way, that describes some of our houses sometimes, right? Our homes. It, it feels like a raging battle. There's bullets flying and bombs are exploding and, and you feel like you're surrounded on all sides and Right? Have you ever felt that way in your own home? Having a conflict with your spouse or your kids or your parents or your brother, your sister? And what is he saying here? Well, when you feel that way, there may not be literal bullets flying around or literal bombs going off, but nevertheless, don't panic. Don't be afraid and definitely don't run away. Stand courageously in the power and the strength that the Lord provides us. God doesn't give us armor to retreat. And I think that's our knee-jerk reaction when we get into some conflict is what happens? Somebody gets up and walks off. Right? Or is that just in our house? Oh, yeah, it's just in our house, right? But it's true. You, you get going and somebody just finally says, that's it, I'm done. And you, and you retreat. You, you leave. And so... What, what is the point here? Well, we, we need to understand that, that conflict is inevitable. I mean, there's no such thing as a conflict-free marriage, a conflict-free family, a conflict-free church. We should expect to have disagreements with one another from time to time. As long as we're sinners, we're going to clash with one another. That's why I love the title of that book on marriage, When Sinners Say I Do. There's another one called, What Were You Expecting? What were you expecting? You get two sinners under the same roof. You're going to have some conflict. You're bound to have some conflict. And, and, and multiply that times 350 people under one roof in a church. The odds go up. You're going to have even more conflict. And the easiest way to deal with the conflict is just to run away from it. And that's often why people get divorced. That's their way of running away. That's why they drop out of ministries. I can't work with you, and so I'm done with this. Or that's why they disappear from the church, and you're like, hey, where did that person go? You know, I don't know. They never said anything. But then you hear through the grapevine that they had a problem with somebody or something, and you're like, well, why didn't they, why did they just run away? Why didn't they run towards the problem and deal with the problem and be a part of the solution? And I think it's, it's sad, but most of us spend our, our whole lives running away from conflict. And we leave a whole bunch of loose ends just, just hanging out there in our lives. I love what Jay Adams said in his Christian Counselor's Manual. He, he addresses this idea of loose ends. It's very interesting. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, one of the greatest difficulties between husbands and wives, parents and children, and various members of a congregation who have had poor interpersonal relationships is the problem of loose ends. Loose ends are those interpersonal problems between Christians that remain unresolved. Problems between Christians should not continue unresolved. When they do, strength is sapped from the congregation and members work at cross purposes. 
Unresolved problems hurt everyone and dishonor Christ's name. There is no place, therefore, for such loose ends in the church. God does not allow for loose ends. Rather, he insists that every personal difficulty that arises must be settled. Whatever comes between Christians must be removed. Every difference must be cleared up by reconciliation. I believe that. That's, I think, part of what it means to be diligent, to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we know what Matthew, 20, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 says, right? When you're bringing your offering before the Lord, you're coming to church, you're ready to worship the Lord, and you hear or you know that someone has something against you, maybe you didn't even realize it. But, and maybe it's not even legitimate, but somebody is offended. Somebody feels like you've sinned against them or hurt them in some way. You hear of that or you know of that. What does it say you're supposed to do? Ah, they're just being big babies. They'll get over it. If they have a problem, they need to come to me. I don't need to go to them. No, what does it say? Leave your offering there and go make that right. How can you have fellowship with the Lord if you're out of fellowship with one of your brothers or sisters in Christ? The other side of the coin is Matthew 18, verse 15 says, if your brother sins, implied, sins against you, what are you supposed to do? Wait for him to come to you and, and admit that he's wronged you, and, and so you sit around for days, weeks, months, maybe even years for your father or your mother or your spouse or somebody you're, to come and say they're sorry and to ask you to forgive them? No. You go to them, it says. If your brother sins, go to them and seek to restore them. And so either way, whether you've sinned against someone or they've sinned against you or even they, you've offended somebody or they've offended you, either way, you have the responsibility to go. It's never right to run away or to sit and wait for the other person to come to us. We should run toward the conflict and ideally we should meet each other on the way. If everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? I sinned against that person. Maybe I didn't even realize I did. They're over there waiting for me. No, they're coming to me to confront me, to restore me, and I'm going to them because I heard they were hurt, so I'm going to them and we meet halfway. And guess what? The problem is halfway solved at that point. Because you're proving that you are godly and you're seeking to resolve the conflict biblically. You're doing your part. And so there needs to be a commitment, I just uh, a heart commitment to pursue biblical reconciliation. We must be committed to do whatever it takes to t- tie up all the loose ends in our lives. So that's the first direction. Don't ever run away from conflict. Secondly, we need to take responsibility for our part in the conflict. So you've done the right thing. You've heard of somebody's offended or you've sinned against them. They've sinned against you. They're come. You're there. You're together. Now what? Well, you take responsibility for your part in the conflict. Notice verse 2. I urge you, Odi and Sintiki. Is that what your Bible says? It should say, I urge Yodi and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. You see what Paul was doing? He, he was holding both of them responsible for the problem. And he was careful not to take sides here because he knew that they were both at fault in some way. So that's why he almost addressed them separately. Listen, Yodi, I urge you. And, and Sintiki, I urge you. It's not like, come on, Yodi, get your act together. Sintiki's waiting. Or Sintiki, I know, you know, she's just a little, you just got to, no. Listen, you need to deal with what you did wrong, and you need to deal with what you did wrong. Now, this is easier said than done, because whenever we have a conflict with someone, it's a whole lot easier to see what they're doing wrong, or what they did wrong, than what we're doing wrong, or what we did wrong. Is that true, or is that just me? I mean, it's always that way, right? Right? It's far more difficult to see what we 
are doing wrong. And why? Because we are experts at blame shifting. We are professional finger pointers. We learned it from Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, that should tell us something. After the first sin was committed, nobody took responsibility for it. And then God showed up in the garden and said, hey, uh, why are you guys hiding? Did you eat something you shouldn't have eaten? And uh, Adam, what? Don't look at me. The woman you gave me, ultimately he was blaming God. It wasn't my fault. I was fine by myself until you had this idea of taking one of my ribs out and making this female, and it was her idea. I was just minding my own business. So he totally throws Eve under the bus. Well, then Eve's like, uh, well, it was a serpent. The serpent made me do it. Blame the devil, right? The point is, as long as we keep focusing on what the other person did or is doing, the conflict will never be resolved. The first thing we need to do is to examine ourselves to see what we're, what we're doing to contribute to the problem. And I've done this. It's a little awkward in, in, in counseling, but hey, I'll, I'll try anything if it helps. But I may listen to a couple for a, a 45 minutes, the, the majority of the session, and they're just, they're just kind of unloading the problems, and, and I'm taking notes, and, and, and typically what you find is the whole time they're doing this. She does this, well, he does this, and then she does this, and he doesn't do this, and, and so I'll just say, hey, you know what, guys? I want you to do a little something. I'll put my pen, pen, pencil down, and I'll say, take your finger and do this. I'm, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, treat you like kids, but... For the last 45 minutes, I've watched you do this, which, by the way, we all do. And so we have to think differently and go, it's not about her or him, it's about me. And it's an attempt to apply the principle in, in Matthew chapter 7, it's where Jesus said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a log sticking out of your own eye? You can insert anybody's name in there. Why are you trying to speck a husband? Why are you trying to take the speck out of your wife's eye when you got a log in your eye? Wife, why are you trying to take the speck out of your husband's eye when he's got a, you got a log in your own eye? First, it says, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to what? See clearly to take the speck out of your husband or wife's eye. So it's not that God doesn't want us to admonish one another and point one another's sin out at times, but we need to make sure we're not doing it hypocritically. We need to be humble and recognizing, hey, listen, I just want you to know, I, I admit that I am messing up here big time. And I want to deal with that in my own life. And so the question is, what is your log? One of the homework assignments I'll give from time to time is, I want you to go home and, and, and write out a log list. Write out all the logs in your eye. Just all the sins that you struggle with. All the ways that you've contributed to the problems in your marriage or the problems in, your, in this situation, this conflict, whatever it is. Write them down, all the logs. I don't want to hear what you think they did. I want to hear what you think you did. The point is God holds us all responsible for our part in the disunity, the, the disharmony, whether it's our marriage, our family, a, a friendship, our church. And in order for it to be diffused, there needs to be not only mutual recognition of fault, but there also has to be mutual repentance and mutual forgiveness. Biblical reconciliation typically requires both repentance and forgiveness. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus gives some instruction about forgiveness Luke 17, verse 3, be on guard, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Jesus must have been thinking about marriage. Because it's not like you just sin one time against your spouse. Um, and it's not always a different sin. It's oftentimes the same exact sin over and over and over again, isn't it? And we need to be willing to forgive no matter how many times 
who are sinned against, we need to be willing to forgive. And we also need to be, know how to seek forgiveness. And I think that's where it all starts, is we need to confess our sin to God and seek His forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's about getting right with God. It's, it's, you can't get right with another person if you're not right with God. But once we've confessed our sin to God, we need to confess our sin to each other and and, and forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 32. Be kind to one another. Did I say 4? Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, you've never gone to God once in your lifetime and asked Him to forgive you for something and he kind of gave this number to you. I'll think about it. I'm working on it. He says, yes, I forgive you. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect as soon as you say those words, I forgive you, because there's, there's a lot of hurt there. There's a lack of respect. There. There's a lot of things that have gone on there that need to be worked through, but I think that should be our initial response. There should be a willingness to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I think what this means is we need to develop the, the difficult habit of saying, you ready? I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And then the other person, right? Sometimes you're in the opposite and you need to learn to say what? I forgive you. Does anybody else have a hard time forming those words and having them come out of, my, come out of your mouth? I'll just be honest. I mean, this week, uh, I thought, man... The Lord was preparing me for this message, apparently, because um, Kel and I had a conflict about, of all things, cockroaches in our garage. And I found something that now is second only to snakes in my life, and that's cockroaches. Those things are of the devil. What is up with cockroaches? Anyway, we had an infestation in our garage because we thought it'd be a good idea to store some firewood in a bucket in your garage. Keeps it dry. Don't have to walk out in the cold in the winter. Just go out to the garage. Easy. Stupid idea. There was wood roaches coming out at night all over the garage. And uh, Kelly had mentioned that, you know, she wanted me to kind of take care of that. And of course, being the dutiful husband I was, I got right on it. Well, I thought if I just kept the bucket closed, we'd be okay, you know, and as long as they stayed in there, problems contained, I don't really need to get that involved. So I was not loving my wife and taking care of that, and uh, when they started kind of becoming a problem, so um, I made a late night run to, uh, to Walmart after I was very tired, after a long day, I'd woken up at 4.30, you know, and now I was having to go out one more time to Walmart, and I was not very happy about the whole thing, but um, all that to say, we had a conflict, and the next morning, it was still not resolved, which means we let the sun go down in our anger, which is sin, which is wrong, right? But it took me from our house all the way to the woodlands to get those words out of my mouth, that I was wrong. And let me tell you the four specific ways I sinned against you in this whole thing. <laughs> and I need you to forgive me for those four things. But I, I was like, I was choking on those words for 25 minutes before they could come out. And I humbled myself, right? I had to humble myself and just say it. And so there was silence until that point. And I'm sure you've all been there, right? Th th those long, silent car rides where you kind of just stonewall one another and like, we're just going to give each other silent treatment. 
See how you like that. The best uh, marriage counsel we ever got is a guy who looked at us and he said, guys, the key to a good marriage is two good forgivers because you're going to sin a lot against each other. And so you got to know how to forgive. And so the second thing we need to do here is to diffuse this unity is to admit how we've sinned and seek forgiveness and offer forgiveness. Yes, I forgive you and move on. Thirdly, Maintain Christ-like attitudes and actions. Maintain Christ-like attitudes and actions. Notice verse 2 again. I urge Yodi and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Literally to be of the same mind. And that's what he said back in chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintain the same love. Intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. So he's essentially saying, don't just have the same mind. I want you to have the mind of Christ, who was completely humble and completely selfless. Because as we learned back in Philippians 2, what causes this unity is one of two things, selfishness or pride. And so whenever you have a conflict going on, I guarantee you, you could diagnose it, diagnose it in a second. Somebody or both of you are being either selfish or prideful or both. It's what it always is. And if you're not quite sure what to begin confessing, start there. You know what? I'm being selfish right now. Or, hey, I'm being prideful right now. And so humility is really the cure for disunity. We need to be more concerned for others than we are ourselves. We need to stop thinking about what others can do for us, what our spouse can do for us, uh, or, or, and start thinking about what we can do for them. And that's exactly what Jesus did to resolve the conflict between us and God. He goes on, have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it was Christ's humble servant attitude and selfless sacrificial actions that motivated him to leave heaven and come to earth to die so that we could experience reconciliation with God, that, that we who were enemies could now be friends. And so in order for us to experience reconciliation in our relationships, we, we need to demonstrate the same attitudes and the same actions that Christ did. We need to be Christ-like. You want to talk about how practical it is? Paul's passionate pursuit of being like Christ. We just got done studying that in, in chapter 3. That's what he wanted most was to be like Christ. Listen, that comes in handy when you come up against a conflict with another person. That really demonstrates how you're doing in your pursuit of Christ-likeness. Because that's really the, the, the truest test of how much like Christ you are is when you experience a conflict. How do you respond? What, what are your attitudes? What are your actions? And so, be like Jesus. Number four, work together to resolve the conflict. Work together to resolve the conflict. Notice he says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That word companion or comrade, suzogos in the Greek, means yoke fellow. So the idea here is of two oxen or you're yoked together and they're they're, they're pulling the same load. They're working in unison together. And so that's who he refers to, this true comrade. And there's lots of uh, ink spilt about who this guy was. Some think it's Epaphrodites. Um, some think uh, who we already mentioned in chapter 2. Some even suggest that it was Paul's wife because um, 
that was a name, Cezagos was a name, uh, uh, another term for a wife, although that's the big speculation whether or not Paul was even married. I think it's most likely that this was a name of a man in the church. That this was a proper name, Cezagos, possibly one of the elders. He addressed the elders in chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. It's likely this was one of the leaders of the church. Paul was appealing to him to live up to his name. Hey, you're a yoke fellow. You know, what it's a, you know what that's all about. Ox working together, pulling in unison. Hey, live up to your name. Help these women. Come alongside these women and help them reconcile their differences. And apparently, Yodi and Sintiki had not asked anyone to help them resolve this difficult situation. And, and sometimes it's good to ask for help, the help of a third party to resolve a conflict. You, there's times when you might read it, reach an impasse and you're really at a loss as to what to do and it, and it would be wise to seek out a mediator to appeal to, to those whom God has gifted and equipped to come alongside those who are struggling with, with conflicts in their lives, whether it's the pastor or elders or uh, other mature Christians who are trained in biblical counseling, for example. In fact, the Bible says that all of us have the ability and the responsibility to come alongside one another when it comes to overcoming some sinful situation in our lives. Romans 15, 14, Paul says that we're all competent to counsel. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul addressed everyone in the church and he said this, we encourage or we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Galatians 6.1, if you see a brother overtaken in a fall, you are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of a gentleness, watching yourself lest you too be tempted. Matthew 18.15, if you see a brother in sin, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to him and seek to restore him. Sadly, a lot of churches don't do that. They don't. They don't practice, you can call it church discipline, it's, it's the God-ordained process of restoration, going out after a lost sheep and bringing them back to the fold. I think there's this mentality that, man, that just sounds harsh, it's too difficult, or you know what, I've just never seen that done before. And so... Churches are dis disobeying the clear teaching of the Bible. They're not utilizing one of the means that God has given the church to help people resolve conflict and overcome sin in their lives. And so uh, I think the result is churches filled with a bunch of unresolved conflict, unresolved problems, a bunch of loose ends blowing around the breeze. Which makes for awkwardness in the church, by the way. When stuff doesn't get resolved, it's just awkward. It's weird. It's like, oh, here they come. I'm going to go this way going to go hide in the bush somewhere. They might not see me. I'm going to go the opposite. You know, that's just, that's just wrong. That should not be the way brothers and sisters in Christ interact. That's not what God intended for us. And so if any of us are ever aware of somebody stirring up strife or, or spreading dissension, which by the way, Proverbs says that's one of the things that God hates, those who spread dissension amongst the brethren. If you see anyone or hear of anyone or experience anyone spreading dissension by their words, their actions, then all of us have an obligation to gently and humbly confront them and lovingly seek to restore them to fellowship with God and the church and, and anyone else maybe they got sideways with. And as we know what Matthew 18 says, it, it comes to a point where if if after repeated efforts to restore someone, um, after ample time has been given for them to repent and they don't, then the Bible says we're all required to, what? Cut off fellowship with those people. To treat them like an unbeliever. And so the point is that diffusing disunity requires all of us to work together to restore our relationship with God and each other. a team effort. And speaking of team, look at this last point, the last direction, if you will. Contend for the cause of Christ. Contend for the cause of Christ. 
the end of verse 3, he says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. That word struggle is athleo in the Greek, which is where we get our English word athlete. And so this is, uh, the idea is competing alongside one another. These were, these were my teammates. Yodi and Satiki were, were on my team. Paul's saying they were on my team. We were on the same side. And Paul was recalling how these two ladies had, had, had used to fight side by side with him in the battle for the gospel, but now they had their guns turned on each other. And so the implication here is he wanted them to stop fighting with each other so that they could get back to the business of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had lost focus. They forgot why they were doing all this to begin with. It wasn't about them. It was about Christ and his gospel. And I think this is one of the most frustrating things about disunity in the church is you end up running around putting out fires in the church which leaves no time for doing the work of the ministry. And as we Christians sit around fighting with each other, there are souls all around us that are dying and going to hell. But we've got all these little petty problems and preferences that are way more important than people's souls, right? Can you imagine what kind of impact could be made for Christ if Christians spent as much time talking to others about Christ as they do talking to one another about the problems in the church? Paul longed for this church to be one mind, one heart, striving together for the gospel. And so the final direction that Paul gave to diffuse disunity was to remember that our, what is our purpose as a church? It's, it isn't to contend with one another. We didn't come here this morning to fight amongst ourselves. We came to contend together for the cause of Christ. Amen? One more thing I want you to notice from this text that isn't directly stated, but I think it's implied here, that even though this rift between Yodi and Satiki was huge. I mean, it was, it was huge. It, it, it must have been huge for him to mention it in public, in this letter, openly. And yet, Paul didn't think the problem was irreparable, or that, the, the woman, or that one of the women might have to leave the church. The fact that he urged them both to work on the problem implied that there was hope that this relationship could be reconciled. And so this passage gives us the hope that, that any two people can resolve any conflict between them by following these simple step-by-step directions for biblical reconciliation that Paul laid out here. No situation is hopeless or beyond repair. There's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. Amen? And if we follow these five directions to resolve Conflict here in this church, in our homes, or in any other strained relationship that we have in life, wounds can be healed. Christ's testimony can be maintained or restored. And God's work can go on. Father, we're thankful for this very practical text that hits home for all of us because we're sinful people and no matter where we go in life, we're around other sinful people and conflict is bound to happen. And so we, we got to know how to resolve that conflict biblically. And uh, so it's not for lack of knowledge. Lord, we have the knowledge. You've given us the steps. It's, it's the want to. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just give us the want to this morning, that we would want to pursue biblical reconciliation, that we would not leave loose ends blowing in the breeze, 
And so, Lord, would you grant us grace, not just here within the four walls of this church whenever we interact, but probably where we spend the majority of our time in, in the four walls of our home, that you would help us to learn how to apply these principles that we've looked at today in our relationships within our house and within our neighborhood, within at our workplace and in our community, that we would be an example that um, we'd give no reason for the world to, to dishonor Christ by the way we dishonor him, by living hypocritical lives and fighting amongst ourselves as Christians. Lord, what a bad name we give Christ. And so I pray you'd help us, Lord, motivate us, give us a desire to do your will for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.